everybody. Uh, welcome to this week's episode of Crime at the Family Table. I am your one of well, one of your hosts, Latanya, and I am joined here by my esteemed, lovely, gorgeous, fabulous co-host, Alyssa. Alyssa, say hi. Hello. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> Listen, I just feel like we gotta come in pumped and hyping each other up because every week is like you know, we're coming into this week, just new, same us, but different stuff can be going on. And we need some of that motivation. We do, because different week, new challenges, new levels, new devils. <laughs> right. And and it keeps happening. It's like we can't get no rest. So, like, we got to come here with, with a mood shift, especially when we talk about some cases that we talk about. It's just like, oh. We need some upbeatness to go along with it. So before we before we jump in, I do want to say that my neighbor is mowing the lawn. Um, well, his backyard, I guess. So if you guys hear that, that's that, and I apologize, but I don't know who mows their lawn and this late in the evening, but it happens. Hopefully, it'll be finished soon. Right, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I mean, hopefully, like, I mean, I've been in your neighborhood, I just feel like there's not that much grass. It's a little in the front and the back. So, if you if you mow it, it shouldn't, I don't know. We just mowed our lawn, it should take you 10 minutes, 10 minutes flat. It's literally no. no. There's a man across the street from my house that also moves. Like he takes care of his little piece of lawn. Like, he, and I'm like, okay, go ahead, sir. Like most mornings, I see him either like just doing something, trimming it up because each time it rains, it grows somewhere. I get it, I I understand, but it's just like dedication. Some people are dedicated to their property maintenance, um, and we rent, so we have to. That's a part of our lease. We have to maintain the landscaping of the little square of grass but um i am actually excited about this week's case in a way that i feel like i don't know like it the case just had me on the edge of my seat like there's another mystery there's another part of this like (laughs) some cases will have you like that you like it goes that deep Oh, it's that serious? Like, like literally last week, like when we when we had did mine, it was like at each turn, I just didn't understand where this case was taking me. I was just like, hold up, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? It's like I I knew, I knew like we're dealing with like crimes against uh crimes against like a civil rights group is like okay this i know which way it is most likely going to go but then it just like whoa the, the the stretch of justice the years that went on and it's like it's crazy before we get into your case though i want to let you know like you have, have you ever been to gin stakes on like south street yes well they are planning on reopening because they had a fire i guess like mm-hmm last year uh and they're reopening in october i feel like that was the place where all the lines will be super long uh, yeah outside around the corner because it's right uh near like cross the street from copacabana yes oh yeah 
child, you don't know if you're going to get good food or just food poisoning from there. What a, no shade, no shade, no shade. What, what a what? time to be alive in Philadelphia, going to Copas. Um, I haven't been since we were wearing peplums and uh, blazers to the club, so. <laughs> the peplum, the peplum era. Uh, bring me back platform platform heels from Charlotte Roos. Uh, oh, Charlotte Roos, like that is honestly the 2010s era. Had us in the chokehold and and up at ESU. Uh, any and Route 21. Oh, <laughs> that um, the, it was a perfume there called Terea. And, and if you don't know, for our listeners, Terea is homework in Spanish. So my one of my roommates, I had two roommates at the time. One of them bought the perfume, and it smelled good. And our other roommate was like, Terea, don't get me homework. So every time she sprayed it, she was like, I, I smell you wearing that homework. <laughs> Yo, I just knew like Route 21 was definitely the mixture of like Rainbow and Forever 21. <gasps> if Rainbow and Forever 21 had a baby, it would be if- Route 21, Rainbow 21. <laughs> that is like, like, I listen. What a time, what a time, what a time. We're not even that old, but we're talking like the long forgotten years. Is that because we've lived through a recession and like a pandemonium and other things? It's just like, everything seems like we've, we've lived through these life crises of like multiple generations. Oh my God. I feel by the time we do actually get old for real, we're just going to be like, forget it. What if we live through now? Right. Like we're going to have shell shock. If anybody mentions 2020. Girl. Um, it's interesting that some of that kind of ties into what was happening in the 1950s. Nothing changes. Listen, oh, listen, I'm ready to hear it. So, you know, without further ado, let's get into it. So quick disclaimer, this episode we will talk about kidnapping, unaliving, uh, there's a child involved. Um, so if this is not the episode for you, we encourage you to listen to our other episodes, get your life, uh, but we do want you to take care of yourselves and your mental health. So if any of those things trigger you, I would listen to today's episode because it, it's, it gets a little deep. Um, but without further ado, today's decade is 1950s, um, quick overview about the 1950s right so it was the 1950s i wish i had some like 50s music in the background uh after world war ii had ended america was like this great military power like we were that girl the baby boom happened between 1946 and 1964 and fun fact both my grandmother and my mother are baby boomers they're in the same generation Oh my God. I know. My mom, my grandma was 1946. So she was the beginning of the baby boomers. And my mom was 63. So she was at the tail end. Grandma what? was at the- That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Like my mom was born in 66. So she's like, she's a Gen Xer. And that's a different type of the, like hell. That's just a different type of it. 
I feel like my mom was caught right in the middle of a, she has traits of a baby boomer and then she, but she's still so very much younger than them. So it's a very interesting combination. I appreciate her. Um, so between 1945 and 1960, the gross national product more than doubled. It went from $200 billion to, I don't, I hope y'all didn't hear that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, everybody's okay. Uh, to more than five hundred billion dollars, and they call that the golden age of American capitalism. Mm. So much of the increase in the coins came from government spending. Um, they started constructing interstate highways and schools. Um, they started distributing veterans' benefits, and they increased military spending. So they were spending on things like airplanes, new technologies like computers. Mm. That they, makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So all of this contributed to the economic growth in that 10 year span. Unemployment mm. rates were low. Inflation was low. They were getting paid more money. Like wages were high. Middle-class people had more money to spend. Um, the GI bill became a thing. And it the GI bill, if you don't know, was a subsidized um low-cost mortgages for the soldiers that were returning home from wars. Uh, and contributed to redlining, folks. If you don't know what redlining is, it is due to the red, uh, the GI Bill that redlining did, did exist because people, Black military people were fighting in wars, wanted to come home and get housing, but the GI Bill did not give housing to African-Americans. Apparently there's a war in my house. Some things keep me <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes uh people were moving to the suburbs uh out of the major cities um also the 1950s brought about a lot of female dissatisfaction so whereas uh years prior during the war all the men were off to war it was a whole rosie the riveter thing like women were in the workforce they were in factories um they really felt like they were and they were making a difference and contributing in a way they had never done before. Um, so then when the men came home for war, everything kind of goes back to the way it was. Well, traditional like gender roles, they women started to feel confined because they were being restricted to having kids, cooking, cleaning, like taking care of the home as opposed to them being in the workforce like years before. So they were just like, uh, we're over it. And eventually you will see a shift in like women, um, an increase of women in the workforce later in the in the next few decades. Importantly for us, the civil rights movement also was going on in the 50s. Um, it was about inequality and injustice. African-Americans, African-Americans have been fighting racial discrimination period for centuries. Um, but during the 1950s, the struggle against racism and segregation became like mainstream in American life. So um, Brown, Brown versus Board of Education case uh, went to the Supreme Court and they declared that separate uh, schools for Black children were unequal. Like that whole separate but equal thing, like you have segregated schools, but they still be equal was a little crap. Um, and they found that white institutions were giving a better education than, like it was unequal to the education that black children were getting in segregated schools. Also, Rosa Parks made a stand 
Uh, she refused to give up her seat on the bus and that ignited a 13 month, which I didn't realize it was that long, but a 13 month bus boycott. Mm-hmm. Side note, shout out to Claudette Colvin, who actually was the first person to do that. Yeah, but she just didn't look the part of like what they wanted because she was like a single mom and you know young and it was just you know she doesn't get the recognition because Rosa Parks just looks better on paper she was a safer face she was married she was light skin skin right <laughs> that part because yeah I think all that was uh brown skin yeah and she was a teen mom mm-hmm. um, so you know and that doesn't diminish what Rosa Parks did because she definitely made an impact um and she acknowledges what she did. Like, she acknowledges that that happened. And I also want people, if you don't know, if you're, if you're young, just so you know, like, Rosa Parks doing what she did wasn't happenstance. It was an organized protest. Mm-hmm. Like, this little old woman, older woman did not make that decision just that day that she wasn't going to get up. It was an act of defiance that was planned. I just want people to know that now because this day and age everybody's talking about striking and doing these things but you have to understand the planning and work that has to go in to make sure that things are in place because when she was arrested there had to be a plan to get her released (laughs) and what people don't realize is people were united in the call so it's not like she was like yeah i'm giving up my seat and everybody was like yeah we're gonna boycott and then tomorrow everybody got on the bus as usual like they did not they walked to work they carpooled and everything together like they were united which Mm -hmm. made a serious change but the last thing well the second to last thing is the cold war the cold war and the korean war so you know there was the whole threat of communism um which they really never really found anything to say people were being treasonous for committing un-American acts. Um, Mm -hmm. There were growing tension between the Soviet Union and America was at the forefront. Um, Those issues were threatening democracy and capitalism. Of course, it's always about money. Um, And one thing I didn't know, this drew America into the Korean War. Like I knew they were, they fought the Korean War for some BS, like they shouldn't have never been in it. Mm -hmm. because of their issues with the Soviet Union, it drew them into the Korean War in July of 1950. Which is crazy because the Korean War, when we weren't supposed to be in that, and then we jumped into the 60s of being in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. It's like, we didn't have no breaks. Because there's sort of like a war we're involved in in every decade. We just got off the heels of World War II. Yeah. Then the, then the Korean War. Then Vietnam. So, shout out to them. <laughs> to the soldiers. What a time! What a time to experience life! I tell you, and the, no monopoly go to get through the day. Just death and and landmines. It's terrible. Um. So the last thing is pop culture. So in the 1950s, TVs became something that the average family could afford. And by 1950, 4.4 million U.S. families had one in their home. 
The golden age of television was marked by family-friendly shows like I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, The Twilight Zone, and Leave it to Beaver. And movie theaters, popular actors were John Wayne, James Stewart, Charlton Heston, Mar- Marlon Grace Kelly, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marilyn Monroe dominated the box all day. So Elvis Presley, Sam Cooke, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Buddy Period. Period. Come on, Sam. The people. Um, <laughs> the 1950s saw the emergence of rock and roll. And that sound, of course, swept the nation. We all know about these folks. And unfortunately, in the, the tail end of the 1950s, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson died in a plane crash over Clear Lake, Iowa, in what became known as the day the music died. Very sad. Wow. So that's what was going on in the 1950s. Just to give you all a like a taste of Americana at that point and what what was happening where people were. Um, so now to get into the case. This is the case of the Green Lease kidnapping. Okay. Buckle okay. up. It's, <laughs> strap your helmets on. It's going to be oh, Listen, if you don't see it, folks, I'm putting the helmet on. I'm strapping myself in like a seatbelt and I'm ready to go. All arms and legs in the tram car, please. So... In Kansas City, Missouri, on the afternoon of September 28th, 1953, there's a phone call at the Greenlease residence. Mrs. Greenlease answers, and the nun, Sister Moran from the children's, actually, it was another sister. I forget how to pronounce her name, but a nun from uh, her son's school asks her, how's her health? She has no clue what this nun is talking about. Not a clue. At 10.55 that morning, Sister Moran, this is a different nun, not the nun that called, Sister Moran got a knock at the door of the school and was greeted by a woman who told her that she was Robert Greenlease Jr., Bobby Greenlease's aunt. Now, Robert Cosgrove Greenlease Jr., aka Bobby, was six years old at the time, and he was the son of Robert Greenlease Sr. Robert Sr. was a wealthy automobile dealer. Now, this woman who knocked on the door informed Sister Moran that Bobby's mother just had a heart attack and had been taken to St. Mary's Hospital. This woman, she seemed visibly upset. She apologized to Sister Moran for like how she was behaving, um, but it was all matching up to like if you were upset that your sister or your sister-in-law had just had a heart attack or like a health issue. So Sister Moran went to go get Bobby and told him that um, she actually had said that an aunt had called the school for him, but she didn't tell Bobby that his mother had a heart attack. So you're thinking, hey, Bobby, your aunt's here. And he's like, oh, what? My aunt is crazy. And then he goes and sees this <laughs> random lady. You would think he would be like, I don't know her. Or like, uh-uh, I'm not going with her. No. Bobby doesn't put up a fight. He goes without hesitation. She holds his hand and like put her arm around his shoulder. He's he doesn't seem like he doesn't recognize her or that he's scared or anything like that. He just willingly goes with her. Um, and that's the last time Sister Moran saw him alive. So when Mrs. Greenleaf got that phone call, 
she immediately knew something was wrong. So she called her husband, he rushed home, and then they called the police chief. And then the police chief called the FBI. Because, you know, they're rich, they're white. They're going to get things moving and shaking. It went straight from the regular police chief to the FBI. So just to get into the into the kidnappers, because they are something else. The kidnappers were Carl Hall, Carl Hall, I don't know why I can't say that, and Bonnie Heady. So Carl is what they used to call a ne'er-do-well. Like he was just a, a like he couldn't, he just he robbed taxis. He was he was just a terrible person. He actually got arrested and sent to Missouri State Penitentiary. So while he was in prison, he saw an article about Robert Greenlees, um, about him owning a bunch of Cadillac dealerships from like, I think it was like South Dakota to Kansas. Like he owned them in a few different places. Um, and he was very filthy rich. So Carl was like, huh. Uh, he came up with a plan to kidnap one of the kids for ransom. And he just wanted to hit a lick so he could go off into the American dream. He's like, I'm going to get this money. I'm going to retire. Money. Team. So, so he's like, I know I can get at least a million dollars. Like, I know that they would pay a million dollars for their kids. I'm about to get this money. So he always intended to have an accomplice. So when he met Bonnie Brown, he he knew he knew she was the one because he knew he could manipulate her because she was a drunk he was a drunk they both were drug addicts it was a lot going on she was always drunk like he said she, she would drink like a fifth of whiskey just in the morning that was like her, that was like her OJ never <laughs> hated her like so she you know so it's crazy because the the nun at the school recalled that she was like chewing on something i forget what it was it probably was like whatever an equivalent to a stick of gum was she was chewing on something and they put it together like oh she was chewing on that because her breath probably smelled like alcohol so she didn't want to roll up there smelling like alcohol because then they might have tipped the nun off we don't know so bonnie was a respectable housewife like she eventually she divorced her husband and she got like kind of not talked into becoming a prostitute but it just it just kind of happened like she was dealing with she divorced her husband she was dealing with this guy like a lover and he basically he basically was like hey you're good at sex let's you know there's some guys who I feel like would like this <laughs> so she basically ended up becoming a prostitute um, like, it didn't take much <laughs> it said as soon as her husband got off the bed this this new guy was right in his place like it was still warm that's how fast she's like, she's like listen I, I can't deal with the cold shoulder I'm definitely not going to get with a cold bed <laughs> so they were no but these two kidnappers were no stranger to wealth or the life of luxury Bonnie was an accomplished horsewoman which I think means she just rode horses um she her and her ex-husband they used to breed boxer dogs so they were dog breeders and bonnie when bonnie's father died she inherited 360 acres of land that's a lot of land 360 right like like right now like in today's age she would be like a multi-millionaire 
Right. So just for land. So, you know, she had a nice little piece of change and whatever she was employed at a time and however much money she was bringing in a month, like it was a nice little piece of change for a woman in the 50s. So as far as Carl, his father was actually a big shot lawyer and his grandfather was a judge. So when his father died suddenly of a brain tumor, Carl's life went downhill from there. He started acting up, drinking, drugging, criminal activities. It got to the point when he was like, probably like an adolescent, probably like a teenager, or like 12, 13, his mom sent him just to another random couple because there was a male in the house. So he was, she was thinking like, okay, this male presence will probably help him get his act together. Um, so they sent him there and he just ended up eventually manipulating the woman uh, and out of the couple and got really close to her. He still was acting up and doing whatever he thought he was big and bad enough to do. So then he goes to military school. He ends up in military school and he goes to the real service and goes off to war. And then after he goes off to war, his mom dies while he's in the service. So he comes back from the service, his mom is dead and he was left in a state worth over $200,000, which is, in present day money is the equivalent to $2 million. So he was, he was rolling in the coins. So he decided on Bobby Greenlee's as out of the kids, he decided on the baby and a ransom for $600,000, which was the largest ransom in America at the time. Why $600,000 you asked? Thanks for asking. (laughs) It was due to the weight of it. So at first he was like, I know, like I told you, I know I can get a million dollars. I know I can get a million dollars off this guy off rip, but a million dollars would be too heavy for him to carry around. <laughs> he just said, I just, I don't want to have to carry all that money on my back. <laughs> so, so he basically Googled whatever the equivalent of Googling was, but he looked up like how much weight can a man like kind of carry like in money. So that's where the $600,000 came from. It was, 85 pounds so he's like that i can carry 85 pounds around and he could probably run with 85 pounds like because not only walk you gotta be able to run mm-hmm. <laughs> tell it. so the time comes bonnie follows the plan she gets a, a taxi to the school the nun buys the story she's off with bobby Brittany. um in this taxi, it's her, one of her dogs. I was like, okay, bring the dog. One of her dogs and Carl. So as they're in a taxi, going to wherever they're going, they're like asking him a bunch of questions. They're like, um, what are your siblings' names? And he's just giving all this information. He had a sister, Victoria, and a brother, a half-brother. So he's giving him all this information and asking him about his pets. He's like, oh, I got a parrot. Um, and the parrot's name, he's volunteering all this information. And he was pretty, like they later said that he was actually pretty cooperative. Like he was a chill kid. He just kind of went along with the flow. Which is sad. <laughs> I'm like, was he scared? Was he just like, oh, cool. Maybe this is my aunt and uncle. Like, you know. 
Maybe right, because they seem interested in me. Oh, God, that kid needs to get out the house more. <laughs> like, I was just, none of your red flags, baby. No, none. You knew you didn't know these people. <laughs> I was like, is there was there something else going on? You know. Not victim blaming, but damn, child. <laughs> and I just I felt so bad because I'm like, just... Uh, he was just left open but um so they write a ransom note they had actually already written a ransom note because they had they had been planning this and plotting this for months like um they were stalking the family like they would like ride by their house and try and like you know like clock their their daily schedule and things like that they even uh carl at one point had like called the house and the maid answered and was like oh yeah they're out of the country you're on vacation so um which I'm like, you're just telling all, all these people's business is being told. Right, like, why are you volunteering information to people? Like, stop volunteering. Leave it alone. Shut it up. But back then, you could have been like, hey, I'm a vacuum cleaner salesman. It's a family home. And they're like, oh, no, they're on vacation because it's 1950s and we don't have any of these types of concerns. Like, I don't it's just I, yeah some people are just dumb but because we do I, I think you know what it's not even just that it's just like back then like people just did not have again the understanding of really what was going on in the world like that you need some common sense about you and it did not work in his family's favor so these idiots sent the ransom note to the wrong address stop yeah. it stop it they addressed it to the wrong house. So eventually they figured it out. They sent another one to the correct address. And then the phone Like, called. imagine that they were threatening this little child's life. And they were just like, yeah, in 10 days, if you don't do it. And you just realized, like, 10 days has passed. You ain't heard shit. <laughs> so they were like, <laughs> it was like, huh, we haven't got a response. That's odd. We sent it to the wrong address. <laughs> So eventually the phone calls started. They list they listed their demands as the six hundred thousand dollars. They wanted non-sequential bills and they wanted it to come equally from each of the twelve Federal Reserve banks. Okay, that's a lot of work. Like I hope they didn't think that they was getting that shit today. Oh, they got it. Um, but they they wanted them to do all that so it couldn't easily be traced. That's Which, a lot of work. I'm sorry. You can keep the kid. You can keep the kid. That's the only smart thing <laughs> they did. Okay. So they promised, they basically promised that Bobby would be safely returned in 24 hours as long as there was like no trips in the delivery of the money. So the second ransom letter was postmarked. So the the first one that they sent, they sent to the wrong place. Then they sent another one, which would technically be the first one that they the family received in the morning and then they sent the second one postmarked 9 30 at night on september 29th bobby was kidnapped on the 28th so they sent one inside the envelope was a medal that he was that bobby was wearing a jerusalem medal i'm not sure exactly what that is but a jerusalem medal which had been worn by bobby and they had the same thing in the letter they were demanding the 600k all the instructions for it and they stated that Bobby was okay, but he was homesick. 
So I was like, okay. Overall, the green leases received over a half dozen ransom notes and 15 telephone calls. Uh, I'm going to guess that the Jerusalem medal is probably something to do with like a type of cross. That's what I thought too, a religious thing. Because it's like, no, like it's like a cross that's like it's like one cross. It's like four, like five crosses in like this, this thing. That's the only thing that comes up when I find it. Or a rock band. And I'm just going to think that it's not a rock band. I don't think so. They were just. <laughs> so they received uh, over six ransom notes and 15 telephone calls. They were, it, they were like going back and forth with this family telling him how Bobby had to pee a lot and that he was, and Bonnie was like telling the mom that he was driving them nuts and they couldn't wait to give him back. Just all this random, it's like, why are we talking? Give me my child, please. Like, right, right. Like, give me my baby back. So the final communication between the green leases and the kidnappers was a telephone call that they received at one in the morning on October 5th. Got kidnapped the 28th. It is now October 5th. The fifth, wait, hold, hold, hold. What is happening? I am tired. The world's dumbest criminal is what's happening. It gotta be. They gotta be. Like, ain't no way. So these idiots say, in the phone call, they're like, hey, we received the money. Your son is cool. He's alive. And we're going to give him back in 24 hours. And I was like, wasn't that 24 hours? Like two 24 hours ago? Right. So at this point, the reporters are camped out on the front lawn. Because, you know, media is really becoming a thing. So right. visual media. So reporters are camped out on the front lawn. They're, they're waiting for days and days for Bobby's return. Because they're all thinking, we did what they asked us to do. They're going, they're going to give us Bobby back. Why wouldn't they? Unfortunately, that would never happen. Um, Carl saw, said he saw Bobby basically as a piece of evidence that, and he's like, I need to get rid of the evidence. He's the only... What? <laughs> Wait, hold up. Hold up. No, no, no. He saw evidence. Sorry. Like, this little boy is not going to be able to identify you and that dumb lady. Just get your money and go. Right, like, what? Okay, I'm pissed. Okay, keep going. So, September 28th, he was kidnapped. Less than an hour after he was kidnapped, Carl and Bonnie drove out to, like, a little piece of land. Bonnie got out of the car with the dog and went for a walk. And Carl and Bobby were, like, sitting on the, what do you call it, like, the the... Uh, the tailgate of the car mm. so they were sitting on there and then Carl intended to strangle Bobby so he had a piece of rope with him but because they were so high and drunk out of their minds he cut the Stop rope it. He, he cut the rope too short so he's trying to strangle him but there's not enough rope for him to grip the rope and put it around Bobby's neck so he's and so he so you're like okay one these people are dumb and two they're literally like torturing him at this point like because 
Because imagine someone trying to choke you with rope and then they just can't do it and they keep trying to do it. I'm tired. No. Bobby was too, but <laughs> good grief. So he tries to strangle him with a piece of rope, but he cut the rope too short. So he's struggling. Carl gets frustrated. And unfortunately, he eventually took out his gun and bashes Bobby in the face with it, knocking out three of his teeth. He then holds him down and just shoots him in the head. What the fuck? What the fuck? All that? They could have gave this little boy back to his parents, took the money. And just left it alone and had money. Yeah, they would have got locked up eventually. But damn. They could have left him so far out that the police were looking for Bobby way over here and they could have been gone. Right, because there is no like, okay. All right, now I'm hot. Now now I want to fight. I want to fight these people. Are they still alive? Because if they are, we need to go beat them up. That's where all the plot's thickened. So on October 5th, like I said before, when they, the last telephone call that they had between the kidnappers and the Greenleaf family was October 5th. So October 5th, Carl Hall, one of the kidnappers, purchased two metal suitcases and he transferred the ransom money from the duffel bag that they had sent it in to these suitcases. And he left the duffel bag in an ash pit in South St. Louis. So at this point, they got the money. Carl and Bonnie go on a 38-hour bender, like alcohol, benzodrine, just drugs, alcohol, drugs, alcohol, bars, bottles, everything. They deserve to be caught. <laughs> they Not just... only because they've killed the child, but because of the fact that they don't deserve to like to get away with this. <laughs> like, what? Because you're going to need more money because you have an addiction. It's just, <laughs> it was too much. I'm tired. I am tired. They're going to burn through the money and not even spend it on a trip to Disneyland. Like, it's just too much. Disney was a thing back then. So, <laughs> so while they're on this, like, little road trip or whatever, Bonnie's just talking nonstop. Like, she won't shut up. So, Carl's getting mm-hmm. more and more annoyed with her. So, he eventually takes her to an apartment that he rented. It was, like, an already furnished apartment that he rented on Arsenal Street, which is also in St. Louis, um, she immediately passes out. She's so out of her mind. She gets there and passes out. And guess what happens? He leaves her there. <laughs> he got the cases <laughs> up under the arms, the daddle. And my whole thing is this. This is this is where this is where pretty little liars like comes into play. The only way two people keep a secret if it's one of us are dead. Because why the fuck would you leave this woman? I thought it was going to say he killed her. No, no, no. He deserted her. He left her with about $2,500. He put it in her purse. Good luck, sis. Of the $600,000, he left her with like $2,000. And he wrote a note like, hey, girl, um, you stay here, lay low. I had to go. 
because people, you know, the neighbors were getting a little suspicious. They seemed like they were, you know, like lurking around and stuff like that. So I'm gonna just, I'm gonna go ahead and take the rest of the money. I'm gonna go. I'll be back for you. You just kind of lay low right here. Okay, just so you know, uh, $600,000 in the 1950s is the equivalent to about almost $8 million today. Mm-hmm. God damn. I'm going to get that little boy back. I'm sorry. I would just gave him back. Go ahead. Let me get my money and go. Let me get my money and be out. So the next day, Carl purchased two large garbage cans and a shovel. And he rented a car and drove to Merrimack River in St. Louis County. He was planning on burying the ransom money. But he couldn't find the right place to do it. Like, he couldn't find a suitable place. So he eventually left the, the trash cans in, like, a deserted clubhouse and drove back to the motel where they were staying. But he started getting paranoid. So he then moved to an apartment at the Townhouse Hotel in St. Louis. So he had already left Bonnie. For, he left her for dead. He left her. <laughs> and he went all the way to the apartment so after after he leaves he gets in the cab of John Hager John Hager works for the Ace Cab Company so John tells the dispatcher he's like I think I might have one of the Kansas City kidnappers in my car John worked for Joe Costello, he Joe Costello owned Ace Cab Company, and he was also linked to the mob. Right, because that last name sounds so familiar to me. So, so John is not just a taxi driver; he's what they called a one-girl pimp. <laughs> he only had one one of. He only had he one. one. <laughs> it was Stop only it. one horse in the stable. <laughs> and he was wearing it all <laughs> fuck His these characters in this, this these characters in this are just you never know where this is going the, the layer it's like a movie so you know he notices that Carl got this money flowing so he arranged he's like oh let me get my girl Sandy Sandy O'Day it sounds like a horse's name though <laughs> I was like, real? So he gets his girl Sandy O'Day to come and spend some time with Carl. She basically was a, a high was an escort. So Carl's wheeling and dealing money at this point. He's getting he's getting John, the cab driver, to run errands for him. He's like, hey, here's twenty five hundred dollars. I need some underwear, um, a new shirt, and something else he asked for um but he's tipping generously so john's like oh bet i got this you know i got this guy i'm just gonna keep following him around like uh, screw any other people need taxi i'm with this guy it's my guy right here yeah so he stuck to him like glue for a little bit so john drops the dime so his boss joe costello like i said joe's linked to the mob so joe then tips off a crooked cop course guess what his name is it, it made me cackle lewis schultz. 
What? Lewis Shoulders. Loose Shoulders? Loose Shoulders. It's like, what is happening? Like, I feel like I'm laughing too much at this because it sounds like making like of just some bullshit. Like it sounds like a movie. They need to, they need to, I don't, it sounds like How, Hollywood make make it happen. I know they're on a writer's strike right now, but when they get off of their strike, please make it happen. Oh my god. So Lou Shoulders is known for being a shakedown artist. So he goes and Oh, so he shakes them by the shoulders. That's what I see. I couldn't I couldn't let you say that without me saying something. Like I really without was like Louis Shoulders is his name. And if you see a picture of Lou Soldier Shoulders, he he's a big guy. Like he's really tall and he has really like broad shoulders. So I'm like, you look like your name is Louis Shoulders. Oh my God. I look at I'm looking at him now. Oh my God. He looks freaking humongous. Huge shoulders. So he was a shakedown artist, crooked cop. So he thought Carl was an embezzler or like a robber that he could just like take him for some money real quick. So Shoulders takes a beat cop, like just like a regular patrol officer with him. Um, His name is Elmer Dolan. So he takes Elmer, Elmer. Elmer and Lou Shoulders. So he takes him with him to the motel and they arrest Carl. So they took him in, they booked him, and then they disappeared for over an hour. Lou and uh, Lou and Elmer. So when they come back, they had the suitcase with the money inside, but there was only two hundred and eighty-eight thousand dollars in there. What? Where the out, money? Out of the six hundred thousand dollars, there was only two hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars in there. So, and this is why people with addictions need not do any major crimes because, especially financial crimes, because they're gonna blow their money on bullshit. But wait, it's not all what it's what it seems. Okay. So Carl was interrogated by FBI agents, you know, other law enforcement, and immediately he turns on Brian. He's like, "This is this, this is who it is." So they arrested her. She was still passed out drunk at the motel when they got there. So they arrested her. She has like a bunch of scratches on her face because uh, Carl, you know, they had gotten to a tussle about their accommodations. I guess they were pissed off about where they were staying and Carl started hitting on her. Um, so when they arrested her. I need to be in a Ritz Carlton, please. Put my kidnapping and murdering ass in a Ritz Carlton, please. Thanks. Like- so she all scratched up. When I first saw the picture, I was like, why do you look dirty? But she just scratched <laughs> up. So Carl admitted to FBI agents uh, that he planned the kidnapping, the actual abduction, and he copped to burying the body in the yard of, in Bonnie's yard in her house. Um, apparently they had like, they buried him like under her flower bed and they put a bunch of lime over top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, eventually they found this body or whatever, but he also admitted to picking up the ransom money, but he denied that he killed Bobby. 
um, until Bonnie told the entire story to the police and FBI. So she could, she told everything that happened. Uh, which I'm glad she did because I'm like, you don't get to just lie about this and get away with it. So right. here's where the case wraps up. On October 30th, 1953. So he was kidnapped on September 29th. By October 30th, the case is open, shut, closed. They're in a trial. So Carl and Bonnie Heady. Carl Hall and Bonnie Heady appeared before Judge Albert L. Reeves in federal court in Kansas City, Missouri, at which time they entered pleas of guilty to the indictment. On November 19th, after hearing the evidence, a jury in the federal court in Kansas City, Missouri, recommended the death penalty after only an hour and eight minutes of deliberations. Damn, they said, yeah, guilty. 15 minutes after the verdict was announced, Judge Reeves came out and said, uh, both of you, to, to death. They were that. executed on December 18th. Wait, hold up. Of the same year? Yep. So September 28th, he gets kidnapped. By October 30th, these people are in front of the judge. By November 19th, they are convicted and sentenced. By December 18th, they are to be executed. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like was a little different, like because nowadays, like execution, you could be on death row for years because like the death is involving chemicals. Back then it was like, you know, hanging and freaking electric chair just just didn't take too much nope so they were like okay open and shut guys um and they confessed so it's like they pled guilty so we know they did it um so judge reeves said i think the verdict fits the evidence it is the most cold-blooded brutal murder i have ever tried i mean they are cold-blooded did Bonnie did Bonnie deserve to be on death row? Question mark, question mark, because she was an accomplice. I think she should have spent the rest of her life in jail, though. I mean, I don't believe in a death penalty, but I mean, when we're, we, we, we have no other choice, but they both, like, these people got the death penalty. So I'm going to say that, like, yeah, like, she should, like, I feel like that's a life imprisonment type of thing. Yeah. But I'm also guessing is the fact that, like, you know, it's just, it's easier for them to make that decision, especially because of the mitigating circumstances that she is a woman going out of, like, her woman role. So that is as egregious as what he did, in a sense. Like, that it also is a notch against her. I didn't think about it like that. Mm-hmm. So Judge Reeves sentenced them to death. Carl Austin Hall and Bonnie Emily Heady were executed together in Missouri's mm-hmm. lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri on December 18, 1953. So they actually had never, there's never been a like dual execution like that. Like they put them in the gas chamber together they had even they had to get a special gurney to put them like side by to make to put them side by side so they can be injected at the same time basically 
So Hall was pronounced dead. Carl Hall was pronounced dead at 12, 12 a.m. And Bonnie Heaty was pronounced dead 20 seconds later. Still at 12, 12 a.m. So that is the end of them. That is not the end of this case. Because the question remains, what happened to the money? Right, like where's the money? Over half of the $600,000 was never found. FBI investigations established that the two suitcases were not brought to the 11th District Precinct Station as testified by the arresting officers, Lieutenant Lewis Ira Shoulders and Patrolman Elbert Dolan. So they were like, oh, no, no, the suitcases were here. They were brought to the 11th District. What are you talking about? Both officers ended up being federally indicted for perjury. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Shoulders was convicted on April 15th, 1954 and sentenced to three years in prison and Patrolman Elmer Dolan was convicted on March 31st 1954 and sentenced to two years in prison so you know that's not a lot of time so after they were released from prison they both returned to the St. Louis area now for years the FBI had badgered Elmer Dolan to come clean. They were like, "Hey, if you come clean, we'll give you a presidential pardon." Like it's it's going to be gravy. You already did your time, whatever. So he declined time after time it, until 1962. Um uh, both Lou Shoulders and Joe Costello were dead. So he was mm-hmm. like, "Okay, I'll talk now." Uh, he was actually like afraid for his life. So that's why he didn't say anything. He was protecting Joe and Lou. So he was flown to Washington that September and agent Philip King took a six page statement from Dolan that confirmed suspicions and added a few details. So here's what happened. Lieutenant Shoulders passed the luggage, passed the suitcase to Joe Costello outside the hotel before they took Carl in for booking. Joe Costello took the money home. Lou Shoulders and Elmer Dolan went back to uh, Costello's place after they booked Carl Hall. And at that time, Joe Costello had removed half the money from the luggage. Elmer Dolan, the patrol cop, said that Lieutenant Shoulders offered him $50,000. Dolan was like, I don't want nothing to do with that crap. And then Shoulders was like, you really don't have anything to say about it? And Dolan was like, no. So he lied to protect Shoulders and Costello because, like I said, he feared for his life. Um, He didn't take the $50,000 that he offered him, but he did accept $1,500 in hush money from Joe Costello, like after he had got out, after Elmer had got out of jail. Um, He accepted the $15 in hush money. And Dolan was like, hey, it was Christmas time. I had a wife and six kids. So I took the money. Um, so in 1965, Elmer Dolan was, got an official presidential pardon by president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, um, due to like J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, like he, he urged president Johnson to pardon Elmer Dolan and he did in 1965. So he got a presidential pardon for his crimes. Um, the FBI believes Joe Costello wanted the money through the St. Louis mob boss, John Vitale, who had connections with the Chicago mob. Oh, the mob is coming into this, like, the, damn. 
boom, bow, pow. That's the story of the Greenlease kidnapping. It's insane. It literally, I did not know where this was going. I did not expect a murder. I did not expect that. That's some crazy shit. But wow. Crazy case, crazy case. Well, uh, if anybody's interested in, um, I guess like watching a quick clip on it, there is something on PBS. Oh, you can just type in the Greenleaf's kidnapping and it'll pop up. It's like 25 minutes. Um, and a guy who was doing research about it, um, he really like dove a little deeper into it, but it's it's an interesting quick little watch. But that is it. We thank you for listening to today's case. It took us here, it took us there, it took us everywhere. <laughs> Listen, it took us all over the place, but we we got through it together. As per usual. So next week, is it gonna be next week? Yes. Next week, Latanya will be doing the 1940s and we'll hit you with another case. Yes, yes, yes. Most definitely we will hit you another case and I look forward to doing because I finally found a case that I feel will be interesting enough to, to talk about. So, uh, see you guys next week and you guys all stay safe and see you next week. Bye! Protect your magic. Bye! Thank you.